Jesse Rakama visits Cortez Island School. This is Odette Auger for Cortez Currents. Jesse Rokama is a self-taught contemporary Coast Salish artist. Cortez Island School Parent Advisory Committee fundraises every year for an arts and music program. I offered to help coordinate artist visits, and as an Indigenous person and artist, I wanted very much to see this happening. We were grateful to hear Jesse was willing to drive from Qualicum for an artist talk series, meaning for each session he was sharing a 14-hour day with us, leaving at dawn to get to Cortez School to share with two classrooms, intermediate and senior. Jesse brought his tools and carvings and gave an insightful talk and demo, sharing skills and in Indigenous ecological knowledge with the youth. But one of the interesting things about what Jesse shared was the manner in which it was shared in. As an Anishinaabekwe, I have a deep appreciation. I notice it right away when teaching is done in a holistic, interdisciplinary way. Jesse started with an introduction, and since he was sharing carving skills, he began asking youth about local trees, their qualities. Soon we were deep into traditional ecological knowledge. Each of these trees sort of had their place culturally within the world here. Cedar is a very important tree. Cedar does provide a lot of aspects to our world, but one of the things that I want to like you want I want you guys to be able to take away from today is knowing that cedar isn't the only sacred tree. Cedar's not the only tree that provides for people in this world. And we have this here for a paddle. We're gonna sort of see the process progress of this yellow cedar plank, one by six. Uh, we'll see the progress of it turning into a paddle. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be made out of yellow cedar. There's a few trees that are really good for making paddles. What holds a tree together? The roots. Mm, that holds a tree up, but not together. The grain. The grain. I'm going to pass this around so you can sort of see how light this is. Yellow cedar is more dense, but it also has, it has a longer lifespan in the sense of how much, how, stir, how much sturdier it is. So it's light, but it's not too light. You can feel that it's, you know, it, it is light, but it's also got some weight to it. It's something that's gonna cut the waves, no problem. Red cedar will also cut the waves, no problem, but red cedar functions better when it's just a bit thicker and not being used as much for for uh, use as a paddle, better for making a canoe out of, or making house planks out of. But once it gets to a certain thickness, then it starts to get a little, a little too soft and, and frail. <clears throat> and you wood, you wood's heavy, but you wood is very strong and flexible. So when you're in a canoe. What sorts of maneuvers do you do in a canoe? Paddle. So you paddle, yep. You paddle. What are, you steer. And, and how do you steer? Twisting. You pry it. You pry it. And with you would, you would, you can have a paddle that is thinner than this and just as strong. 
The senior class warmed to the subject, and I watched as one Indigenous girl asked her teacher for permission to move closer to the front to be able to focus more on Jessie's talk. How would you get a plank of wood? How would you get a plank of wood off a tree? Chopping it down. How would you get a plank of wood off a tree without chopping the tree down? Kind of bridge. Chopping it. Kick it down. Without taking it down. Cut a chunk out of the side of it. Draw me a diagram. No, I'm talking about the flex. So there's a thing, you just take a piece out like that. Out of the side. And how'd you do it? With saw. How'd you do it without a saw? Yeah. Ross. You can like cut it like, along the bottom on the top and like let you know it's in the tribe. Show in the diagram how you do that. <laughs> it doesn't. I just cut it. Like, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then like. Then it opens and like add things in, kind of like put that one pop out maybe. So everybody see how she how she did that? No. Like pride. So, just to expand on that, this is also the same way that we would take an entire. You could easily take a 60-foot plank off a tree and not kill the tree. So, let's pretend this is our tree. And we want a plank off of this tree. And we would make a little notch. And then we would start to, as was suggested, put some wedges in on either side and start to pry the plank off the edge of the tree until it just naturally came off. If we wanted to sort of secure the length of the plank that we were taking off, put another notch up at the top. Then it'd only be that length. Another indigenous student volunteered to draw diagrams on the chalkboard no. of how she thought she knew you could take boards off a tree without killing the tree. How would, if we wanted to get a bunch of planks off, how would we take down a whole tree without a chainsaw? Burn through it. Show me on the diagram. And just like maybe keep it. And then just having a section that you just light, light a fire and then just keep it contained, like prevent it from going up or down the tree and you just burn it right through. That's exactly it. You'd cut a little groove in here. <coughs> Have your little fire going. And so it just goes deeper and deeper into the... You'd be watching it the entire time to make sure it doesn't just set the tree on fire. And then eventually, you can just come back on the other side, chop in here, and then watch the tree fall. Crack, boom. And And then smother the fire so there's no fire, so it's not going to cause a forest fire, because we don't want a forest fire. Even though sometimes people would light a forest fire on purpose. 
And what do you think that is? To get berries. To get berries. To get berries. That combustion in a field like that provides a lot of nutrients into the ground and allows for more fertile soil so that more stuff will grow. But they were always controlled fires. They weren't just sort of mindlessly lighting a fire and then leaving it burn up the entire island. Because there's a lot that we have that we have to do as people, not just indigenous people, but as people, is looking after and taking care of all of our natural resources. And, you know, how just, just sort of, we'd never take more wood than we needed. We'd never take more, we'd never take down more trees than we needed. If we didn't need the tree, we wouldn't take it down because then you're just wasting it. And when we're hunting seals or deer or ducks, we wouldn't take more than we need because then we're just wasting that resource. And if we just start to take too much and too much and too much, then soon enough we're not going to have anything left. Jesse explained cultural and regional differences in design. Using a paddle as in one example, he described how you could tell right away where a paddle maker was from by how they had designed and shaped the paddle. He went on to describe environment influencing design. This one is a more coastal style canoe paddle. And there's a bit there's a bit of purpose to you know how and why it was designed in this way. And part of it was see the, the way that this blade will, will cut into the water. When it goes into the water, it won't damage kelp beds. So the so the tip of the blade, it will go right through the kelp, but it won't cut it. And then as it moves through the kelp, it still won't damage the kelp beds. So a lot of the more, you know, just sort of regular rounded or flat uh, paddle blade shapes, they'll damage kelp beds because they're not meant for ocean going canoes. And one of the natural sort of features of the Discovery Islands around here in Desolation Sound is that there's a lot of fast moving water. There's a lot of high currents, there's a lot of whirlpools, and so you really need to know how to navigate in the water, and you need to be able to find the places where the water is either moving fast, and so you can use it to help you move faster, or where it's not moving fast so that you can keep yourself sheltered from the fast water. Because sometimes when it gets choppy, not so fun out there. Now back to this paddle. Back to this paddle. There were a number of sort of different blade shapes that were used amongst Coast Salish groups. Um, see. This one here is just sort of one example. There's also one that was more, sort of more general diamond shaped paddle blade. And we also have sort of the more rounded, but still pointed paddle blade. And what I want to do with this one is look at one blade that was strictly a Northern Salish paddle blade type. And 
has a very well. Whenever whenever I've shown it to people, people have looked at it and thought, "Looks like someone took a bite out of it." And it's kind of like a crescent moon shape. And this is a paddle blade style that is only found in sort of a few number of communities. I was only used in a few number of communities. And I was working with someone uh, from Homolko and they, they saw me working on a paddle blade like this and they thought, hey, like they, they, they recognized that, that, that their grandfather had had a paddle like this. And they always used to laugh at the paddle because they thought it was broken. But this is specifically how that paddle blade was designed. And there were some paddle blades that men used and some paddle blades that women used. And this is a paddle blade that was used for seal hunting and paddling in shallow water. Sometimes you'd be in a canoe to go and visit family and friends. Sometimes you'd be in a canoe to go and trade with some people. Sometimes you'd be in a canoe to go and attack somebody. We still had wars back in the day. We still didn't, we didn't always get along with each other, which is that happens amongst humans, doesn't it? Sometimes we just don't get along with people. But sometimes they were used for hunting. Now, if needed, Paddles could be used, could be weaponized for defense purposes only. They're sort of designed to have a blade that can be dangerous if need be. We try not to do that. We definitely don't do that nowadays because you just really get yourself into a lot of trouble. <clears throat> but this blade shape here, which we're going to be looking at putting on this, this block of wood, as you're paddling in the water, normally you paddle like this. Normally you paddle with your paddle almost straight up and down with the with, with our type of paddles. That's how you get the most efficiency out of them. With these paddles, like that, you can sort of hold out on the edge. And they're sticking up to your, you're sticking up on that seal. Because that seal, seals are very alert. So you start to, you train yourself when you're on the canoe to be as silent as possible. And you do your paddle stroke, and then you, when, you're, when the paddle's still in the water, you roll your hand over. Instead of bringing your paddle out of the water to make another stroke, you roll it over and then it cuts through the water and you make another stroke. If you practice this next time you're on, in a canoe on the water, just roll, roll your hand forward to the blade that's parallel with the water and just cuts right through and see how quiet you can make your stroke. Just, just hear a little bit of trickle of water as you pull through. Jesse's session with the intermediate class that's grades 2 to 5 involved a different project, a spindle whorl. 
Jesse skillfully combined art making, math, geometry, and traditional technology all in one beautifully designed spindle whirl he brought to demonstrate. The second session, Jesse shared a story to the intermediate class and asked them to draw scenes from it. Initially, he read it out loud in Island Comox and then in English. It was about a sea otter who was swallowed by a whale. Teacher Christine DeCetto said it was so beautiful to hear him read the story in Island Comox. Jesse is very clear about explaining. I'm not asking you to draw it in a Salish way. Draw it in your way. It is your art. So, with the younger crew, we are going to read... Well, I'm going to read them um, some stories in an indigenous language that would have been a dialect close to the dialect spoken here, although not exactly the same dialect, but probably also shared stories. Um, And then their job is to interpret a scene from a story. And the intention is not for them to draw indigenous art, but to draw how they interpret a scene from the story. As an artist and youth facilitator, I had to compliment Jesse for his talent as a speaker and storyteller. It was equal to his carving and artistry. The classes listened attentively to his artist talk, even though they clearly loved the hands-on carving most of all. One of the teachers asked me why was it more of an artist talk and demo with some hands-on versus a how-to class. I was mentally prepared for the question, but I did take care to carefully mention the cultural appropriation question, just as how I take care and how I mention it. To teach how to do a Salish carving is something to tread carefully with. Jesse's clearly mindful of that line, drawn in, offered more cultural insights than any appropriated how-to class could have done. Like for the kids to do Indian art. And, you know, my cousin and I had been talking, we were discussing about how we're going to address this uh, through the district um, as an issue that, because I'd done like, you know, done like, you know, art instruction with a number of the classes for quite a while. Um, but, but it's always been something that's sort of like, you know, at, at what point do I have to recognize that I have to also be preventing uh, cultural appropriation from occurring too. Like, I don't want all of a sudden one of these kids um, saying that, oh, I'm going to grow up and be an Aboriginal artist. Because this one time I had a guy in my class come and teach me Aboriginal art. Um, and and like, I, I, didn't want, I don't want that to be something that, that is taken away from what I do. Um, but rather, I, I'm, I was looking at it as a way of, of like understanding Aboriginal art versus just doing it. Um, so we've been trying to like, you know, we're planning on making that our focus of how we're going to approach things 
uh, for classes in the future. And so I think it's a good discussion that, that people should really understand. And I think that the age level of this class is a good age level to sort of start to begin those sorts of thoughts. And how is this or isn't this okay? It is something society has more to learn about, and Jesse manages to plant those seeds for our youth also. They come from First Nations histories, they come from indigenous artifacts, they come from pieces that um, you can find in museums, that they share a lot of characteristics and sort of how these shapes are all fit together. And they tell aspects of, sometimes they'll tell an aspect of someone's history. They might tell an aspect of something that's significant to an individual. And so this piece is a spindle whorl. You have two wolves on either side. And in the center is intended to be a whirlpool. So perhaps there's a story connected to this involving two wolves and an experience they had with this whirlpool. And perhaps those two wolves belonged to someone's history. They belonged to a family that had a connection to these two wolves and their experience in that whirlpool. And when someone were to, if someone else from outside that culture were to go and sort of you know, claim that as their own piece, they're effectively robbing from that culture. Because it's something that they don't have a cultural connection to. And I hear a lot of sort of the opposite side of that being then, why should we be allowed to use metal carving tools when we didn't used to have metal carving tools? And they have, well, why should, we, why should we be able to, why should we be able to use, you know, new carving tools? Why should, why should we, why shouldn't we just sort of stick to stones and shells for carving? Because they're better. Pardon? Because they're better. They're better. They're better? Why, why, but wouldn't that be a form of cultural appropriation by using other tools? They were traded. They were traded items. My my recollection, uh, hearing about stories of early contact between Pomolko and Vancouver's expedition, where people really coveted um, nails. Nails. As in, like you know, the type of nails that you build things with. And they people would the the. Vancouver's crew would find it odd because they didn't use them for putting up their houses, they used them for, for decorative purposes. And part of that, part of part of like, you know, the, 
that they were they were given, they were traded, uh, their better tools, uh, is looking at the fact that we have to recognize that cultures aren't stagnant. How did we acquire these items? How do we acquire the, the this metallurgy? How do we acquire um, you know ways of having pre-cut and measured out materials? As in like you know like somebody can go and buy a piece of wood that is a you know a one by six, uh, whereas before we mentioned last week that we had to you know, cut plants out of trees with wedges and other implements. <clears throat> so we have to look at, we have to understand how there's always a growth that occurs within cultures. There's always an evolution in cultures. So, the reason that I'm sharing this with you guys is because I'm not here to show you how to do indigenous art. I'm here to show you guys how to recognize indigenous art and understand a connection that you can have to it, a connection that you can make from, with yourself in recognizing where you're living and Perhaps even look at ways in which you can find in your own cultural background how you can explore artistic creations in, in that regard. Which I'm trying to make it a nice way of saying, don't do indigenous art if you're not indigenous. But not telling you not to do art, I'm telling, I'm just suggesting, letting you know that there's a lot of avenues that you can take with a lot of these styles that we're doing. And I've mentored with some younger artists, like I've had younger artists mentor under me before, and they generally have their own style. Everybody's sort of got their own, everybody has their own sort of natural art style that goes along with what they do. Sometimes that natural art style is the way that you cook eggs in the morning. Sometimes that natural art style is the way that you might be able to fix a car really easily. But yeah, you have some, there's like sort of like you know natural little abilities that sort of are tuned in your head that you're, you're just sort of drawn to. And those those are all variations of arts that we can you know be a part of and explore and expand and use to help contribute ourselves as members of a community and as a society. COVID-19 interrupted the final session in the series, but the classrooms will have carving from Jesse that will stay with them. Owing to current lack of training in the larger system and society, Indigenous cultural content is often taught in a way that does not yet truly embody the First Peoples Principles of Learning, FPPL. Often Indigenous curriculum content is understood as cultural activities only without seeing how Indigenous ways of relating can and should be infusing activities. FPPL is not curriculum content alone. It's a way of being in relationship that is attuned, responsive, and is creating emotional safety and health for the youth in the classroom. Thank you. 
miigwech, imot here in the North Salish Sea. Thank you to Jesse for bringing his art and his teaching talent to bring our island youth an opportunity for greater understanding. When COVID-19 passes, you can see Jesse's artwork at the Hollyhock Lodge in the fireplace room, at the Fame Smith Memorial Pavilion at Qualicum Beach, or check out his Facebook page at Satlam Arts for more information.